0: holy father i thank you for your mercy and for your grace god i thank you for your goodness i thank you that you love me you love us i thank you that you care about us i thank you that you've made yourself known to us God, I thank you that you have called us. You've opened up our eyes. You have justified us. And right now you are sanctifying us. Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, can you speak to us? God, you know each and every one in this room. You know what they're going through. You know what they are experiencing. You know their deepest, darkest secrets. You know their evil deeds that they are hiding. You know their guilt and shame that they are carrying. You know their ignorance and their blindness. And yet, Lord, you did not leave us in our darkness. But you came as the light of the world. And Lord, my prayer for us, for those who are in darkness, can they see your light as they hear your calling? Can you help them to walk out of their darkness into this marvelous light? Can you help them to see the cost of their deeds being exposed is nothing compared to the wonderful light they receive in you. And Lord, can you give all of us encouragement knowing that there is life and light and only death and destruction and darkness. So open up our ears, open up our hearts, open up our minds. Make yourself known to us, and we love you and we praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, "Amen, Amen. if you have your Bible, says, turn to John, we're going to be in John chapter eight verse 12, as we're continuing our series through the Gospel of John. Now, in the Gospel of John, and what we've been talking about um, over three months, maybe even longer, is that John is trying to show us is that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, and the way he does it is by showing us how Jesus revealed glory, and then later on, we're going to see um, in the Gospel of John how Jesus received glory from the Father, and his ultimate purpose of doing all of this is to invite his readers in to believe so that they may have life. Now, in chapter 7, questions about who Jesus is rings throughout chapter 7 as the people are just amazed at Jesus. They are amazed at all the miracles he has performed. They're amazed at the fact that Jesus actually asked the paralyzed man to get up and walk and carry his mat on the Sabbath and the authorities did not do anything. They're amazed at the teachings of Jesus. He's teaching With such authority, and yet he has no formal training. And they're also amazed with everything that Jesus is doing. No one has been able to touch him. The authorities have not been able to arrest him. And with questions around who Jesus is, at the end of the feast last week, we saw how Jesus makes a passionate plea after the water ritual. Jesus pronounces that if anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. Like in other words, what Jesus was doing, he is saying, hey, that water ritual that you're seeing, that thing that you're longing for, that you're celebrating, it all points to me. I am the fulfillment. That water is nothing because I am this true water. I am the one that provides water for salvation. And we see how some doubted, some believed, some were skeptical, some were unsure, and there were even some who conspired against him to arrest him. But they could never end up touching him. They could never end up arresting him because they were powerless because Jesus' time had not yet come. They had no power to touch Jesus until God allowed it when his time had come. Now, in our passage today, I'm going to do a little sidetrack and then get to our passage, because as you've noticed... Um, I've asked you to turn to John chapter 8 verse 12 instead of John chapter 7 verse 53 because the last verse we ended up with was John chapter 7 verse 52 and so you would think we would talk about verse 53 and I'm skipping that passage and you might also have noticed that in your Bible there's some of your translations there are these brackets that says that the earliest manuscripts do not include John chapter 753 and to John chapter 8, verse 11, unless you have the King James version, and I'll talk about it in a little bit. So this makes you wonder okay, let's stop here. What in the world is going on? Like why is this passage saying that in a sense that the earliest manuscripts did not include it? Does that mean that passage is unreliable? So then why would they include this in the passage? Now before we talk about it, I think it's important for us to make some affirmations of what we believe about the Bible and then talk a little bit about manuscripts and why this passage is not included and why I'm not dealing with it. So so, so here are some of the things, some of the affirmations that we believe believe about the Bible. We believe about scripture. We believe that scripture was inspired by God. In other words, he's the author of it. It came from him. It's his idea. And because it was his idea, it's his word. It is authoritative, which means it's the word of God that has authority over our lives. We also believe that it is inerrant, that it is sufficient, and the word is clear for us to understand. Now, when we say the word is inerrant, what we mean by that is that the Bible is completely truthful and reliable in all that it it affirms. So in other words, the Bible does not affirm anything that is untrue. Why? Because of the source. Who's the source of the word of God? God is. And if he is completely truthful... He cannot say anything that is untruthful. And so, when we say the word of God is an errand, we're saying it's reliable and truthful and all that it says because the Lord is the source of his word. And so, in a sense, the Bible was written by God, but it was written by God through men where the Lord inspired them. He spoke to them, and they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so these men, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, as they were writing down God's Word in their original writings, these writings were duplicated. And as they were duplicated, and as they were copied and preserved, these manuscripts went out from about them so that other people could read it. So the way to look at it, as the original authors wrote it, there's an original manuscript And since they did not have a copier machine that they could just run several copies and just send it out to people, they actually would have scribes that would word for word copy it and then send it out for other people to read and also for the preservation of it. And so this is why there are hundreds of manuscripts of certain books. Now, the most famous Greek New Testament the one that King James actually used, were using manuscripts from the 12th and 13th century. However, as time went on, earlier manuscripts were found. So in other words, when the King James were translated in English, they were using the 12th and 13th century manuscript. But as time went on, earlier manuscripts were found. And according to scholars... Earlier manuscripts have a tendency to be more reliable because they're closer to the original. So think about it in terms of this. That the older a manuscript is, the closer it is to the original. The the newer a manuscript is, the further it is from the original, which means there could be a chance that some errors could creep in or the scribe couldn't clearly read what was saying, and he's thinking, okay, I I think this was included here. And so the principle is, the earlier the manuscript, the more reliable and the better the, the manuscript. And since we come to our passage here, as some of these manuscripts were found and the earlier manuscripts were not found, they put it in brackets and say... It doesn't mean the story did not happen. It doesn't mean it's not reliable, but we must take caution in this text because over 900 manuscripts have the story included, but the earliest manuscripts did not have the story included, and we're not 100% sure if some of the scribes actually added it in later. Now, for some of us, we're thinking, well, if that's the case, then do we even know if the Bible is true?" And I could say with confidence it is true because, again, whose word is it? It's the Lord's word. And the whole miracle of the Bible of how it's been duplicated and how it's been preserved and the unity of Scripture really shows us the sovereignty of God in it. And so if men would actually write stuff on purpose and error to take away from the Lord, you think God would allow that to deceive His people? Like, think about the story in Acts. Ananias and Sapphira, what did they do? They lied, and what did God do? Struck them down. And so what we have to do is, part of it, we rely on the sovereignty of God in preserving Scripture, But then we also rely in the hundreds of manuscripts that have been preserved and where scripture was copied and they were compared and they were looked at. That's why you see fine footnotes and prints that gives you a little caution. So in other words, if you see a little A or a little B or a little C, you'll see, hey, some of these manuscripts does not include it, which means like, hey, you need to start thinking about it. Does the other manuscripts completely change the meaning of it or rather does it clarify it? And so, It just tells us, hey, let's just be a little cautious with the text. Now, this could be a sermon in itself as I can talk about how the canon came to be, the whole Bible and what they followed, but I want us to move on. Now, many scholars will look at the passage that we're going to pass on, and they will say, some scholars will say, okay, because there's over 900 manuscripts, that include this text, we should put it in. We should talk about it. And then there are some scholars say, yeah, just because there's over 900 manuscripts that have it, but the earliest manuscripts do not have it, that means there must be caution. That means it does not fit. And then, even most scholars agree, if you look at the, the footnotes, like if you look at A in your footnote of the Bible, it says this passage could either be after John 7:36 or 44:52 or even 21:25. And then, some scholars even believe, saying, We don't think this is John's original writing. We think this might be Luke's writing. So, what do I mean by all of this when we look at our text and we look at the story? First of all, it says we need to proceed with caution. Second of all, I'm not saying the story did not happen and there's nothing to learn from it. More than likely, the story did happen. And more than likely, there's something we can learn from it. But I fall on the side where I think this writing tends to reflect Luke's writing. Because if you look, if you study all the Gospels, like which Gospel writer gives us the most detail about every little thing? Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? Dr. Luke, he was a medical doctor. He gives you details about everything. And so, if you read the passage, you're like seeing all these little details, which some think, okay, it fits with Luke's writing. But here's the ultimate reason why I don't think this fits, and this is why I'm moving on because of the context of our passage. And, if, and I'm going to explain it in a little bit, the context of our passage. The context of our passage where we find ourselves is still during the Feast of Shelters. Jesus just made a plea saying, I am that water that the shelter is pointing to. But the shelter, the Feast of Shelter is still going on. I'm going to explain a little bit. But let's look at um, verse 12 and then hopefully you'll start to see these two pieces come together. Look at verse 12 here. Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So bear with me here. If we assume, and I say assume, not know, but assume, and if you want to disagree with me, I'm cool with that. You can. I give you every right to. But if we assume... That the passage of John 7, verse 53, all the way through 8 to 11, was not part of the original writing, then we can assume that verses 12, verse 12 flows from verse 52. And what happened in verse 52? In verse 52, after Jesus made the claims, nobody arrested him. The Pharisees are talking among themselves. They are calling Nicodemus' name because Nicodemus has said, hey guys, let's not jump to conclusion here. And the context is still the feast of shelters or the feast of booths or the feast of tabernacles. And here's why I say verses 12 flows with verses 52. Because right after the water ritual, that's what we talked about last week, according to the Mishnah, Jewish tradition and law, there was also a lighting ceremony. So after they did the water ritual, Jesus made a declaration, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. It kind of interrupted that. And then after the water ritual, there was a lighting ritual where the four pillars, four huge lamps in the temple courts would be lit. And according to the Mishnah, the Levitical orchestra, the band, would cut loose. In other words, maybe they'll just throw their sheet music out and just start playing spontaneous, a little bit with a, a little jive, and people would get the beat, and then the men and women would start dancing, and they would hold their, their flaming torches up, and the people will be singing and praising the Lord. And it was said that this lighting ceremony, these four pillars that were lit, were so bright that it would illuminate a light throughout Jerusalem. Now think about this picture that's going on, and it is in this context that Jesus stands up, and he says, I am the light of the world. In other words, just like he interrupted the water ritual, saying, hey, if you are thirsty, don't put your hope in that water. Come to me and drink and I will satisfy you. He's almost in a sense saying, hey, you think that light is bright? You think that light is spectacular? Let me tell you, it might illuminate Jerusalem, but I am the light that illuminates the entire world. And even think about the feast. What was going on the feast? What was the purpose of the feast? The the purpose of the feast is where the people of God would celebrate the deliverance that God brought them out of Egypt and God's provision as they were wandering through the wilderness to the promised land. And it was also a looking ahead of where God would deliver them and provide for them. And as you think about it, as they were wandering through the wilderness to the promised land, how did God provide for them? He gave them bread from heaven, which Jesus already addressed, and he provided water from a rock that Jesus already addressed. But how did the Lord lead his people? During the day, he led them by a pillar of cloud, and during the night, he led them by a pillar of, pillar of fire. That's right. And it's during the celebration, this is what they're celebrating. Remember how the Lord provided for us. Remember how he led us out of bondage into the promised land through a pillar of fire. He is the light that has led us into the promised land. And he is going to be the light that is going to lead us from into salvation, into the once glorious promised land that he has given us. And Jesus already said, I'm the bread from heaven. He already said, I am the living water. And now Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. And the people knew exactly what Jesus was declaring. Scripture was overflowing with passages that spoke uh, as the Messiah of the light of the nations. I'm only going to read two for you, otherwise we'll be here forever. Isaiah uh, 49, 6, he says, It's not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, some of you are saying, well, I think the context here, he's talking about Israel, But again, when Jesus is saying, who's the true Israel? The people or him? Jesus is. Who's the light of the world? Jesus is. And the message of Jesus is going to go where? Through the ends of the earth. The psalmist would also point To God being the light. Psalm 27 verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? And with the powerful phrase that Jesus is using, the phrase, I am which is the very similar phrase the very name that the Lord assigned to himself when he revealed himself to Moses I am translate it I am who I am Yahweh and Jesus says I am the light of the world and with this shocking statement about his identity, what Jesus is saying in this declaration, that he is the Messiah, the prophets foretold, that he is God himself, that he is that light, the very presence of God, that pillar of fire that led them during the exodus. And he is the shining light that will lead his people once again into the promised land. And as Jesus' declaration came with a stunning force, he doesn't just say it and walk away. He doesn't just leave the statement in the air, but there's immediate consequence. Look at the second part of verse 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He doesn't just walk away, but rather he gives a command. He says, anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, there's immediate consequences to Jesus being the light of the world. He gives a command. He says, whoever follows me, you will never walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. In other words, Jesus wasn't just declaring who he is, but he was also giving a command. A command of him being the light and to follow him. It was a call to believe. It was a call to go from darkness into light. Now, I want us to move on here because I want us to focus on how the Pharisees respond. But in the end of the the message, under application, I'll talk about what the light of the world and this declaration that Jesus made with this command and also a promise, what it means for us personally. But let's first look at how the Pharisees respond to that. What I want to do first is, I hope you see the gravity and the context of this declaration that Jesus made. I hope I did an okay job. We were kind of like, okay, I'm seeing the context here. I'm seeing the weight of what he's saying to these Jews, how this whole feast is pointing to him. Look at how the Pharisees respond in verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. In other words, the religious leaders are against them. They are accusing him saying, your testimony does not stand because according to our law, if you are going to declare something, you must have at least one or two eyewitnesses to validate your testimony. And because you're making a claim on yourself, it doesn't count. So in a sense, they're accusing him. You're a liar. You're making up stuff. You don't have any eyewitnesses to validate these claims. But what they did not understand is that the words of Jesus carries much greater weight because he's not from this world. He's not an ordinary man. And what they also did not understand is that Jesus' testimony is not on his own, for his father himself bears witness to Jesus. Look at verse 14. Even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true, because it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sends me testifies about me. Now, there's so much to say, and if you're leading Life Group this week, you can really unpack it. I'm not. Uh, I I just want you to understand the gist of it. What Jesus is saying is that the testimony concerning him is true. Not because it stands alone, but rather he he knows who he is. He knows where he came from, and he knows where he is going. And his opponents, these religious leaders, have really no right to speak because they don't know anything about him. They think they don't know where he's from. They don't know where he's going. They think they know where he's from. He's from Nazareth. They think he is a a son of a carpenter and he's going nowhere. But John knows and his readers know where's Jesus from? He's from above, he wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. And he's not just the son of a carpenter, but rather the son of David and the son of God. And he's not going nowhere, but where is he going? He's going back to the Father, and the way back to the Father is the cross. But then Jesus also says, you have no right to judge me, because you don't know me. And your judgment is based on human standards. In other words, what he means by human standards is that you're making a judgment from a deprived human mind who lives in a fallen world. You are finite. You cannot see everything clearly. You think you see everything, and based on that standard, you think you make a judgment, but you can't. You're deprived in all of that. And Jesus says, but my judgment is true. Why? Because it comes from an infinite God. And it's in line with an infinite God. It's not me judging on my own, but my judgment is in line with the Father's judgment. And then he says, and yes, according to the law, In order for a testimony to be valid, there has to be two witnesses. But let me tell you, my testimony does not stand alone, but rather my Father also testifies about me. And they're thinking, Joseph, but who's Jesus talking about? Jesus is talking about the Father. And think about the the life of Jesus. When did God the Father testify about Jesus? Jesus. At his baptism. What happened at Jesus' baptism? The Spirit descended on him in a visible form. And God spoke out in a loud voice and said, what? This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The Lord also, God also, God the Father also testified about Jesus, not just only at his baptism, but also at his transfiguration. This is my son, whom I love. You better listen to him. And so this is what Jesus says, like, yeah, my, my testimony does not stand alone. My Father testifies about me. And, and look at this, they don't understand verse 19. I, verse 19 says this, Then they asked him, Where is your father? You know neither me nor my father, Jesus answered. For if you knew me, you would also know my father. And he spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple, but no one ceased them because his hour had not yet come. And by their question, who is your father? They're simply admitting they know nothing about Jesus. They think they do, but they know nothing. And worse their inability to recognize who Jesus is because if they cannot recognize who Jesus is, it means they really do not know who God is because Jesus says, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. And because you do not know the Father, that means you do not really know me. And if you say you do not know me and you're asking where my Father is from or where my Father is... You do not know the Father. And, and how could they? They're, they're judging according to, to human standards. They're, they're, they're thinking about earthly things. And even Jesus even said, You really can't know me without the Father revealing it to you. And even though these words infuriated the Jews, where Jesus straight saying, Look, you don't know God you think you do, you do not know God, which means you are a lawbreaker. You are a child of the devil. You're living in darkness. And even though these words would infuriate these people, look at what they could not do. They couldn't touch him. They couldn't arrest him. Why? Because his time had not yet come. And so now, in the next text, we're almost done. We're going to get to application. Jesus, again, restates and clarifies that where he's going, where he is from, who the Father is and who he is. Uh, look, at, look at verse 21 as Jesus says where he's going. Then he said to them, I'm going away. You will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said again, he won't kill himself, will he, since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. In other words, what Jesus is saying, where's Jesus going? He's saying, I'm going away. What does it mean? It means he's going back to the Father. And how's how's the way to the Father? It is through the cross. And what Jesus is doing is referring to his death. And they're thinking to themselves. And and look at the irony here. They're thinking to themselves, is Jesus going to kill himself? And they're both wrong and right. Right. Okay, bear with me here. They're thinking Jesus is going to kill himself. They're both wrong because Jesus would not die by killing himself. But they're also right because what would Jesus do? He's going to lay down his life. And the very ones who's wondering, is he going to kill himself, are the very ones who would kill him as Jesus willingly lays down his life life and then jesus cuts right through the misguided speculation and he declares where he's from verse 23 says this you are from below he told them i am from above you are of this world i am not of this world therefore i told you that you will not you will die in your sins for if you do not believe that i am he you will die in your sins Who are you? They questioned. Exactly what I've been telling you from the very beginning, Jesus told them. I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the one who sent me is true. And what I've heard from him, these things I tell the world. They did not know he, they did not know he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to him, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, because I always do what pleases him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And again, this passage is so dense, I'm just going to do a quick overview. And life groups, feel free to dive in deeper. But Jesus is basically reinstating and clarifying. Where is he going? He's going back to the Father through the cross. He's going to die. And Jesus clarifies, where is he from? Jesus looks at them and says, you are from below, I am from above. You are from this world, I am not. In other words, where is he from? He is from God. And even though they did not understand who Jesus is, the full disclosure of Jesus will take place when he is both humbled and glorified at the same time. The full disclosure of when they will know who Jesus is is found in verse 28. Look at verse 28. So Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. So when is Jesus most fully revealed? At when he's lifted up at the cross. And think about the cross here. The humility of Jesus by means of the cross is also the greatest exaltation of Jesus on the cross. It's this weird paradox where Jesus is most humiliated and most exalted at the same time. It is where he most fully reveals himself. And he says, when the Son of Man is lifted up, then you will know that I am he. A.K.A. the very same name that God gives himself. I am who I am. Then you will know that I am God. And it's the function of the cross that reveals Jesus. That's when the Jews will know the truth. It does not mean they'll be converted, but certainly they will know the truth. And if they come to know Jesus, it will be only through the cross of Jesus. And if they do not know him by the cross, and they do not believe in him, they will remain dead in their sins. And one day Jesus will come back and they will stand condemned and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And both Jesus' teaching about the cross and he's actually going to the cross is all part of God's plan and God's will. And look at the response of this. Many of the religious leaders scoffed at him. Uh, the text tells us that Jesus' uh, teaching was so compelling, even without the full comprehension that depended on the cross and resurrection. Even though they didn't get to see the true picture, many put their faith in him. So, so let's move on to, to application. jesus makes this declaration in the middle of the feast and the declaration that he's making he is saying i am the light of the world now think about the imagery of light here the the, the imagery of light and darkness the, the bible describes us as walking in darkness john even tells us that we love darkness because our deeds are evil We hate the light. We avoid it because we do not want our deeds to be exposed. So we hide. Even 1 Peter 2 talks about how we've been transferred from darkness into light. And think about this imagery of light and darkness. Think about um, what darkness represents and what darkness means. Like, Like, what is in darkness? Like, in darkness... There's nothing but destruction. In darkness, there's nothing but evil. In darkness, there's nothing but bondage, ignorance, blindness, guilt, shame. All of those things is what's taking place in darkness, and the Bible tells us this is where we live. And what does Jesus do? If you're taking notes, Jesus comes onto the scene and he declares to be the light of the world. He is the light of the world. John even tells us the light is so bright that darkness cannot even overcome it. And so the question for us is, if we understand what darkness means and what happens in darkness, then what does Jesus mean by saying he is the light of the world? Well, as the light who is entering into darkness, by him saying he is the light of the world, what he is saying is, I will take evil and I will destroy it. I will take the destruction of this evil and, and I will restore it. I will take the guilt and the shame of those who used to live in darkness, and I will remove it. I will take the bondage and break you free. I will take the ignorance and the blindness and expose it for what it is. And this is what he is saying when he is saying he is the light of the world. He's looking to you as he sees you living in destruction, feeling the guilt and the shame because your deeds are evil. You are ignorant and you're blind and he comes into the scene and he looks at you and he says, I will take that evil in your life and destroy it. I will take all the destruction that you have caused because of your evilness and I will restore you and the guilt and the shame that is holding you in bondage, I will completely remove it. I will open up your eyes and you will no longer walk in darkness and in ignorance, but you will walk in the light of the world, which leads me to the second point he doesn't just declare i'm the light of the world and just walks away and say well that's nice but look what he does if you're taking notes he who is the light of the world demands a response he says anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness but will have the light of life what does he mean by anyone who follows me what is, he, what is he doing? What is he saying here? He is demanding that you respond to this light. There's no indifference. You either walk out and you follow the light or you remain in darkness. And what Jesus is doing is he is calling you to come from this darkness into this light. He's calling you to lay down your life, to let your evil deeds be exposed so that you can be set free. And this calling of following, this calling of believing Him, this calling of walking out of darkness into light comes at a hefty price. And the cost for you is your deeds will be exposed. The fraud that you are, all of your evil uh, actions will be brought into the light. And think about the big deal it is for us in our culture. How much money, time, and energy and effort do we spend to put up a facade? How much energy do we spend to hide our deepest, darkest secrets? Like if you had to wear a t-shirt to expose all of your wickedness, would, would you want to do that? No, we wouldn't want to do that. This is why as Christians, like, like, we don't like coming confessing our sins. Why? Because we feel guilt and shame. And so we try to hide and we try to pretend because, heavens forbid, people know who I really am. And this is the cost of following Jesus. You can't follow Jesus and still remain in darkness and hiding your evil actions. It has to be brought into the light. It has to be exposed for what it is. And this is what he is calling you. This is what he's demanding, a response to you. And for some of you are thinking, I don't know if I can bear the weight of my deeds being exposed. And I get it. It's not cheap. It's not easy. And it's costly. But think about the wonderful promise that comes with it. That leads me to the third point. Not only Jesus, who is the light of the world, demands a response, but Jesus, who is the light of the world, gives a promise. Like, Like, look at the promise he gives you. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Like, 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 think about this promise here. What does this promise mean? As you bear the cost of your evil deeds and your actions being exposed and everybody see who you really are, He promises you the light of life. And who's the light again? Jesus. So in other words, He is promising you Himself that He is with you. He will always walk with you. So that means even though all of your evil actions are exposed, and people might say, Whoa, they might walk away from you because they know who you truly are. Jesus says, I am with you. You will have me forever. And just as the people of God were led out of the wilderness into the promised land by a pillar of fire, so Jesus, in a sense, is promising, I am with you, and I will lead you in a pillar of fire, the Holy Spirit living inside of you, and my word been given to you into the promised land. So this is what Jesus is saying. And so here's the invitation. As some of you are walking in darkness, where there's evil, where there's destruction, where there is guilt, where there is shame, where there is bondage, where there is ignorance and blindness, where there's sadness, Jesus is calling you He's inviting you in and he says that's not the way to live i am the light i will take the evil and destroy it i will set you free by removing your guilt and shame i will take the destruction that you have caused and restore it for my glory and for your good but you need to walk out of this darkness you need to bear the cost of allowing your sins to be exposed here's the wonderful promise i am with you i am the light of life that will lead you and so this is the invitation so i don't know where you are i don't know some of you i know you're following jesus some of you are following jesus but you're still hiding in the dark you're kind of like walking in between the darkness and the light Because if too much light shines on you, it might expose you for who you really are. And let me tell you, the Bible does not give a category between walking in partial darkness and partial light. You're either in one or the other. You're either in him or out of him. You're either with him or against him. And then some of you are just deliberately living in darkness. And you feel stuck. And you feel like there's nothing you can do about it because that's just who you are. But Jesus comes and he declares. He invites you in and promises to be with you. Let me pray for us. And I want to give you some time to reflect and meditate. Holy Spirit, can you um, convict right now? As the word has been proclaimed, can you open up eyes can you help people see the destruction and the evil the guilt and shame the bondage the blindness the ignorance can you help them to see the light can you help them to see that the cost is nothing compared to the promise and that you are trustworthy for your ways are way better than our ways I want you to just take some time and reflect on your life. Are you walking in darkness? Were you walking in the light? Are you following Jesus, trusting him? Or are you hiding? Because you don't want your evil deeds to be exposed. and our, our our father is so tender and Jesus our older brother is so great that even knowing everything about you he doesn't draw away from you but he draws near you and he graciously invites you to walk out of that darkness and walk towards him and so maybe this morning you need to see that imagery of walking out of that darkness into the light. Ask the Lord to help you. Ask the Lord to help you trust Him. Ask the Lord to help you to see that the cost of following Jesus is nothing compared to the promises that we have in Him. And maybe this morning you find yourself in darkness and you want to step out in the light and you need somebody to pray with you or somebody to talk to. Please come and see us after the service. We would love to not just pray for you, but also walk with you and show you all the wonderful promises we have in Christ. We want you to be part of this family where our sins are exposed. And we praise the Lord because He has overcome and paid for our sins. And even as we get ready to sit at the table, like 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 think about this. Think about what what's represented on the table here. We're not sitting at the table because we don't have much sin. We sit at the table because Christ took care of our sins. Because his body was given to us, his blood that was shed to pay for our sins in full, so that we can be made right with God. And even though I've talked about the cost that we have of walking out of darkness into light, of trusting him and our sins being exposed, the cost of Jesus for you to be able to do it was his life. It was not cheap. God, who took on flesh, dwelt among man, lived a perfect life we could not live, and died the death we were all supposed to die. We were all supposed to face God's wrath. Jesus took that upon himself. And so when we come and sit at this table, we are reminded of the price that he has paid. We are reminded for the reason why we've been transferred out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are reminded of who we are because of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2 says, You are a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood the people for his own possession, so that you may declare the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you've not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is what the table is communicating to us this morning. This is who you are in Christ. This is what he's done for you. And we eat and we drink and we feast on him as we celebrate our Savior. As we confess our sins. As we look to Christ. So, as we get ready to distribute these elements, I want you to meditate on the glorious truth, the, the cost of Jesus for you to sit at the table to bring you out of darkness into his light. And then just thank the Lord for the price he's paid. Thank the Lord for the mercy and grace he's shown you. And for those that have not believed, that are still hiding in darkness, or maybe you're unsure whether you should participate, I think it's best just to wait. Talk to somebody. Let us walk with you so you can clearly understand that what we're doing. Otherwise, if you just take it in vain, it has no meaning for you. And the Bible even says that you're eating and drinking judgment upon yourself.